even these violent beasts, even Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, whatever nation, power, or authority that we might be afraid of, God is sovereign over them. He is powerful over all these things. And he may temporarily permit them to have a certain amount of power, but ultimately their plans will not prevail. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Last week, we looked at Daniel 6, which is perhaps the most famous story in the entire Old Testament, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, This week, Daniel 7 and 8, is probably the most highly speculated passage in the entire Old Testament. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, the, The forewarning I want to give you is as we look at these two chapters, we're going to see things like leopards and lions with wings. We're going to see talking horns with eyeballs. We're going to see chariots with wheels of fire. We're going to see flying goats And we're going to see horns with horns on their horns. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. And as you might have noticed, um, I'm a little bit under the weather and filled with drugs. So it's like a perfect time to take a look at visions and prophecies. This is going to be great. So I anticipate that there's going to be a couple of moments uh, during our time this morning where you're going to say things like, what in the world did I just read? And so I want to give some practical tools for you to know what this book is saying, and equally important sometimes, what it is not. Because I think oftentimes when we read apocalyptic literature, which simply means to unveil, to reveal, these sort of prophecies that we read in Daniel and in Revelation and Thessalonians, places like that, uh, there's two temptations for us. The first one is to create um, conspiracy theories and doomsday predictions as we misread the text. And the second is that we choose not to read it at all because it's confusing and I don't know what it's saying anyway. And so my hope for you is that we wouldn't do either of those things, but we would lean in and see that this is a divinely inspired word of scripture that we've needed for 2,500 years, and we need it again today. So so here's what this book isn't. It's not a code book, all right? These prophecies are not meant to turn readers into investigators or code breakers or doomsday preppers. But here's what it is. The vision of Daniel that we're going to look at today is meant to inspire faith, hope, and worship to help us in the present and to instill confidence within us with respect to our unknown future. See, I I can look around the room and I can say that there's not a single person here who knows with like definitiveness what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know that. And yet we can have hope. We can have courage of our conviction because we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. And so that's what inspires confidence 
within us. So if, if you're taking notes, here's the first point that I put in your note sheet. If we're asking that question, what in the world are we reading? Here it is. It is a message of encouragement and hope. And it is a challenge to each of us to hold fast to our faith in the midst of our suffering. That's ultimately, in a nutshell, what these two chapters are seeking to do. That's the goal. That's the point. This is one of the reasons why, when I was a teenager and I discovered the Reformed faith, I fell in love with it because it gave me the tools to understand this book that eluded me and filled me with dread. But when we have the right tools to understand what it is saying, my oh my, it fills us with hope. It fills us with joy, even in the midst of our circumstances. It inspires one God-filled reality, and this is what it is. God wins. God wins. And when you know on the front end that God wins, it will inspire hope and confidence in you. The image that we should have in our mind is like that of a rock on the seashore. We recognize that our hope isn't necessarily when the, uh, the waves are removed. No, it is the stability of the rock regardless of the waves. Do you see the difference? That ultimately if we have a sure and certain hope and foundation that God is victorious and that he is on his throne and that he is sovereign over all things, then of what should we be afraid and so that's my hope for us as we read this very strange and peculiar and enigmatic story that we would see the person to whom this story points. We need to have an image, a glimpse of what this story is seeking to unveil to us. Here's a quote that I shared with you at the beginning of our Revelation series. I want to share it with you one more time here from Daryl Johnson. He says, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into our imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. That's what Daniel 7 does. If, if your Bibles are open, look at the number of times in which you see the words, I see or I saw, uh, I watched or I looked. Just in the first seven, uh, the first chapter, chapter seven, you're going to see that nine times. It is seeking to convey to us images to help us understand more accurately what is happening in the unseen realm. Things that we cannot see with our own eyes. And so it wants to captivate us. One more thing before we read our text, and this is really, really important with respect to the text that we're looking at today. As I shared with you already, Daniel is apocalyptic literature, just like the book of Revelation, but this particular vision we're going to look at also serves as a messianic text. Here, here's what I mean by that. This particular text serves to validate the coming, the advent, the arrival of the Messiah, who we now know as King Jesus. And so there's a series of predictions. This will happen, then this, then this, then this. Then the Messiah will come. It creates a window in time for the original listeners to anticipate the coming, the arrival of who we now know as King Jesus. 
And it's serving in that way as well, which also serves as an apologetic feature for us, which is just a big word for giving a defense of our faith as Christians. All right, so let's take a look at this. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. You'll note that at the end of chapter 6, Daniel was somewhere between 80 and 85. But the very first verse that we're going to read here, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, which means we're going back in time about 20 years. So Daniel is in his early 60s. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and a vision passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. Oh, I'd like to be in bed right now. Anyway, he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So really quick, in both the Old and the New Testament, the concept of a beast is a metaphor for worldly powers or kingdoms that have established themselves up against the sovereign king of the universe and the Lord of our lives. But it's, it's more than that, because if we just have this idea in our head that it's just about worldly powers and kingdoms, then we're going to say, oh, I wonder who or what the earthly powers or kingdoms, the, the beasts are in our own day today. Is it, is it Russia? Is it China? So here's the way we need to have nuance in this. We need to recognize that the great beasts that are identified in this story are any kingdom, any power, any nation, but also any heart that is bent against the king of the universe, the sovereign king of the universe. So in that way, all of us, all of us, because of our sin nature, the traitor within, have the capacity to become wild and dangerous beasts who are hell-bent against God. And we see this even more clearly in verse 2. It talks about the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Do you see that? So in scripture, the sea always represents chaos, the breakdown of order, and the brokenness of our world. You think, for instance, of how scripture starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos, the waters, the sea. But then from there, what happens? God speaks, and he says, let there be, and there is. And out of the chaos, he creates order. Or you think of another uh, instance in the Old Testament, like Jonah chapter 2, verse 5, when God commands Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to not Nineveh. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm not going to obey God. I'm going to do what I believe is right. And there he discovers a great, he goes on a boat, and he's trying to get away from God, and the sea breaks out, and he's thrown overboard, and here's where we pick up. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, like chains around his head and his hands, and he's brought down to the valley of Sheol, the valley of death. And so every time we read this in Scripture, this language of the sea it's chaos. 
It's evil. It's a distortion of what God has made good and is now twisted and broken and evil. And so that's what we need to be thinking about. And then for the next five verses, we are going to see four great beasts. But I want, I want you to have the eyes to see what is happening on the front end. These four beasts represent two things. The first is they represent four particular kingdoms that will rise and fall. And you've seen this before when we looked at Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 4. So there's nothing new here. But at exactly the same time, these four beasts are stand-ins for all of us. Where we recognize that all of us have the capacity to do exactly what these kingdoms and these powers have done themselves. So we need to be thinking about both of those things as we read this together. So let's look at verse 4 at the first violent beast. The first was like a lion. It's not a lion, it's like a lion. And it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And it was given the mind of a human. So if you were here when we looked at Daniel 2 and 4, you should recognize who or what this is. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This represents the nation of Babylon. The nation of Babylon. And the concept of the wings being torn off this animal, well, that's not new to us either because we recognize what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four. Let me read this to you. This is the vision from God. Cut down the tree. That's, that's Nebuchadnezzar. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. So Nebuchadnezzar receives from God the condition of what we now call boanthropy, which basically is he thinks he is a wild animal all down on all fours. And he chews the grass like an ox. And he has the mind of a crazy person. And for seven seasons, seven being the number of completion in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for seven seasons, the Lord passes over until he repents. And he recognizes that God is sovereign over all things. And he is restored. He's given back his mind. And he becomes the king once again. So this first vision of this lion with wings and the wings are ripped off is a vision of Babylon and of Nebuchadnezzar. All right, let's take a look at verse five. Verse five says this, and there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And so this vision, in all likelihood, is the Medes and the Persians who rise in power after the Babylonians, which, if we know the sequence or the stories of how this happened, it shows us why Daniel had such tremendous confidence when it came to the, the story of the writing on the wall. And then the queen regent tells Belshazzar, go get Daniel. He'll interpret this dream. Daniel comes in and he gives the prediction. He says, the Medes and the Persians are going to wipe you out. And that very night, Belshazzar is put to death. And so again, we see that Daniel was given this vision 20 years ahead of time 
which is incredible to think about. It further validates the claims that he is making. If we treat this as a historical text, even if we have our doubts, our suspicions about whether or not these events happened, we now have to ask ourselves, how could this be? How could this happen? But if you are skeptical, and you do have questions, I, I wouldn't put it against you, because after all, even though Daniel wrote down this vision, he didn't distribute it to everyone until after these events occurred. That would be kind of like uh, if you're out with one of your golf buddies uh, in 1999, he, or he said, you know, I knew that the stock of Amazon would go from $3 to $182. And you went, oh, wow, you knew that, really? So did you invest? He went, no, but, but I knew. I knew. And you're like, if you didn't invest in it, clearly you didn't know, right? Like, you're just saying that afterwards. That does not validate your claim. In the same way, you might say, if Daniel held on to this, then that doesn't validate that he had this dream. But the story continues. Look at verse 6. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings, that's important, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And so this third beast likely represents the nation of Greece and of Alexander the Great. This depiction of a leopard with wings uh, communicates the rate at which he took over the known world. If you know your history really well, you know that at the age of 21, he became a war general. And in five short years, by the age of 26, he had taken over the entire known world. That's incredible to think about, at just how quickly he conquered the known world. He was an incredible warrior, and perhaps the greatest conqueror the world had ever known. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, I, I want to show you that the second vision in chapter 8 further validates this. So look at verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5. It says this, As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn, again, that's the assumption here is that's Greece, between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram, that's the Medes and the Persians here. If this assumption is correct, that's the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the two-horned ram had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it on the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. So if you know your history, you know that there was a story in which there was an epic battle between the Medes and the Persians, especially the Persians, and the Greeks. The Persians had 100,000 foot soldiers and an additional 10,000 horsemen. The Greeks had 30,000 foot soldiers. So from a numbers perspective, this is not even a fight. It's not a fair fight. The Persians have way, 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 way more. And yet, history tells us that on that day, the Persians lost 20,000 soldiers and the Greeks lost 
a hundred. A hundred. And the Persians threw up the white flag and they realized they're getting totally destroyed and the Greeks conquered them. The Greeks were victorious and there was nothing that they could do to stop them. And so again, this is likely an interpretation, a vision pointing to Alexander the Great and the great work that he would do. So then what's up with the four wings, right? Why does number four keep continually popping up with respect to the Greeks? Well, look at verse eight. It says, the the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off And in its place, four prominent horns grew toward the four winds of heaven. So if you know your history well, you know that Alexander the Great died randomly at the age of 33. Some say it's food poisoning. Others say he had the flu. It was just a very random incident, and he died. And he had no successors. He had no children. He had no dependents. And so what happened? Without having a successor... No more and no less than four of his war generals began to fight for control. And, it, and Greece was separated into four different sections. And so this, if you're still wondering, like, is it Greece? Like, do we know for sure that this is Greece? Well, look down at chapter 8, verse 21. It says this. The shaggy goat is the king of, what's the word? Help me. Greece. That's interesting. There it is, the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. That's exactly what happened with Greece. And you gotta know, this happened more than 250 years into the future. There's no possible way for Daniel to know that these events would unfold unless God inspired him to write it down and he saw these visions from God. So Alexander dies at the age of 33. Again, we don't know the circumstances of his death. There's a power struggle that emerges and now there are four war generals who are fighting for all of Greece. Look down at verse 23. In the larger part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, namely the holy people. That's the people of Israel. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he, he will consider himself to be superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So again, scripture reveals to us that one would arise who would be especially cunning and ruthless toward the people of God. And sure enough, you can take note of this and do your own research later. 170 B.C., Take note of that. That is when Antiochus Epiphanes rises in power and he does despicable things against the people of Israel. He will annihilate 80,000 Jews and not just soldiers, but pregnant women and elderly women and children. 
He will come into the temple and he will make a shrine of himself and he will place it in the Holy of Holies. He will create new currency for the people of Israel. And the currency will say, King Antiochus, God in the flesh. He knows the prophecy that one day a Messiah would come. And he forces them to have a currency saying, I have now arrived, it is fulfilled in me. And not only that, he will enter into the Holy of Holies and there he will slaughter pigs who, as you probably know, if you know kosher laws to the people of Israel, that is an unclean animal. He will slaughter pigs in the Holy of Holies as a sacrifice to his own gods. It is remarkable the despicable things that Antiochus Epiphanes did against the people of Israel. He is referred to as the uh, Adolf Hitler of the Old Testament for the incredible evil things that he did against the nation of Israel. But look again at verse 25. It says this. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human hands. And so out, seemingly out of nowhere, uh, he gets a stomach virus and he dies. His mind goes crazy and he dies. And that's it. And so again, the sheer specificity of this story is truly remarkable. Like if, if we still have our doubts today, my encouragement to you is to do your own research, ask your own questions. How is it possible that Daniel would know these events that would transpire in sequence, in order, hundreds of years into the future, between 200 and 350 years into the future, and then moving forward after that as we are about to look at the fourth beast? How is it that Daniel knew that? But again, I want you to have this vision. These are not just predictions for prediction's sake. God is creating a window, a moment in time for us to anticipate the arrival of the Messiah. That's the point of this. So much so that by the time we get to the New Testament and to uh, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see that everyone, all the Jews, are anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. Why is that? Because they know their Old Testament. They know the stories of Daniel. And they're seeing all these events come to pass, which are being fulfilled, and now they're waiting. Now they're waiting. And that brings us to verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked... And there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. Oh, where have we seen iron before? That's interesting. Take note of that. It crushed and devoured its victims, and it trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had on it ten horns. And so this likely represents the nation of Rome for all the incredible power and strength of the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. Each of those nations rose and fell in a matter of 100 to 200 years. But Rome stood the test of time for more than 1,500 years. Rome was far more powerful than all these other nations combined. And that gives you a picture into why God the Father, in his infinite wisdom, saw fit to send his son into the world during the peak of the power of Rome. To reveal that the kingdom of God is not established the same way earthly kingdoms are established. That there is something different about God's 
kingdom. And again, don't forget, this is consistent with Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his vision all the way back in chapter two, right? We have that huge image and the head is made of gold and that represents Babylon. And then you have the silver shoulders and that represents the Medes and the Persians, the belly of bronze representing the Greeks, and then the thighs of iron, which represents Rome. And so this is consistent with the visions that we've already seen, and yet there's something new to the story, which we pick up in verse nine. Look at verse nine with me. It says, as I looked, which means scene change. We're moving away from the four beasts. We're looking towards something else. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. Who's the ancient of days? His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attending him. Thousand, 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books of judgment, that's what we're seeing there, the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And so here's what we see. In the midst of the confusion and the terror and the chaos, these four seemingly uncontrollable beasts that had the thrones placed around them, all these powerful beasts can do nothing against the Ancient of Days. It's so interesting, like it's not an epic battle. The Ancient of Days, he takes his judgment seat, he executes his justice, and they are destroyed. It's like a snap of the fingers. That's it. And so once again, we, hopefully we have the eyes to see this, what God is seeking to communicate to us. Even these violent beasts, even Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, whatever nation, power, or authority that we might be afraid of, God is sovereign over them. He is powerful over all these things. And he may temporarily permit them to have a certain amount of power. But ultimately, their plans will not prevail. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. He is the ancient of days. And then we see something new in verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Circle, highlight, underline, doggy ear, do it all, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so once again, if you see the sequence, one kingdom, two kingdom, three kingdoms, fourth kingdom. During the fourth kingdom, the son of man will come. Who's the son of man? It's Jesus. So much so that all four gospel accounts will, tr will call him, and he calls himself the son of man. Let me give you some examples of this. Luke 19, verse 10. 
Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, Luke 5, verse 24, Jesus says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And perhaps the most significant event in which Jesus references himself as the Son of Man is after Jesus was arrested. And he goes before Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas says, Jesus, what do you say to all these claims from other people saying that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says these words, which fulfill Daniel chapter 7 and 8. He says, I am he. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, that's the end of Daniel 7, and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the fulfillment of what we are reading this morning in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8. These visions that God has given Daniel for the benefit of the original listeners was also for our benefit too, that we would see when the Messiah would come. We're going to be celebrating Advent in just a couple of weeks, uh, heading up in toward Christmas. And what do we do in that season? We remember the coming, the arrival of our Messiah. And so even for Messianic Jews, for our Jewish brothers and sisters who believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of this, Daniel 7 and 8 are crucial to their understanding of who this Jesus is. Because they say, Daniel predicted it through God's power. And here he is. And then, look at verse 17. Daniel 7, uh, verse 14, sorry. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So he is given authority. Where do we read of Jesus saying that he has authority? Wasn't it the last words he gave us before his ascension? Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. We must have the eyes to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So what does that mean for us? Where do we go from here? I want to give you very quickly three tools to take home with you, for you to meditate on later today and later this week and all your days before you, three things that I think are so crucial and critical for us to understand. Here's the first one. The people of God should never be surprised by the durability of evil or the inevitability of suffering. So as I shared with you, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit sick and I got some Sudafed and Tylenol and all those kinds of things in me. But as, as um, I was sick this week, there was two things that I did which are consistent with all men when they're sick. The first thing I did is I writhed in pain more than Julie did when you know she gave birth to Liam without an epidural. And the second thing I did is uh, I watched Lord of the Rings. 
because that's what sick dudes do. They watch Lord of the Rings. And there is an incredible sequence that takes place in the second book, in the two towers, in which Frodo is ready to throw in the towel because there's so much evil in the world. And he can't imagine himself having the strength to endure in light of everything that he's experienced. And so Sam is the means of comfort to him in this moment, even though Sam is also discouraged by their suffering and by their pain and their torment. And so here's how Frodo starts. He says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam says, I know. It's all so wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness, full of danger. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had already happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. The Lord Jesus, when he was in the upper room with his disciples, he said something similar to them. And I picture him saying this with a quiver in his lip, because he knows that he is about to go to the cross, to Golgotha, the land of the skull, and there he will stretch out his hands and die a sinner's death, even though he was perfect in every way. But he looks toward his disciples and he says this, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. I think these are important words for us to consider in our own life. Because the promise of scripture is not health, wealth, and happiness. In fact, the only promise that Jesus makes to his disciples is you will in fact suffer. You will indeed suffer. If you follow me, you will suffer. And so the, the way that I've tried to communicate this to you over the, the course of my four years as your pastor is that we should have a perspective like this, that if I am faithful to suffer well and to devote my life to God, he will use it for his glory and for my good. For his glory and for my good. You even think about these four violent beasts. Do you know what's interesting about this story? We know through our history that the Persians actually helped the people of Israel to rebuild the temple. They paid for it themselves, and that was the, the rebuilding of the temple was critical for the arrival of Jesus. Then came along the Greeks, and they dominated the whole world and because of that, the whole world was all speaking one language, Koine Greek. And so that by the time Jesus arrived, when it came to sharing the good news of the gospel, everyone, pretty much everyone, spoke the same language. And then as the Romans took over the Greeks, we had what we call the Pax Romana. Roads were built here, there, and everywhere throughout the entire known world so the gospel could be distributed for all to see. 
And so even though the people of Israel, they looked at all of these nations and all they saw was evil and suffering, they could also see the manner in which God was drawing all things to himself to accomplish his sovereign will and purposes in this world. That God's plan was moving forward. And so I think we need to have the perspective like Habakkuk when he says this. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, that's a lot of bad news. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. That we should have the perspective to see if God is in fact sovereign on his throne and in control, and if we know the final score, then we should anticipate evil and suffering because God told us we would. Here's the second thing. The people of God should never put their hope in worldly powers. Now notice the way I said that. Should we be involved in politics and in commerce and in every sphere of creation? Most certainly we should. In fact, we should always be the first to step in. We should always be the first to weep and to wail the devastating effects of sin. We should always be the first voice to advocate for the voiceless. We should always be willing to step in and to seek the shalom of the creation that God has made. Peace, justice, harmony, all of those things we should advocate for as citizens of the kingdom of God. But we should never put our hope in it. We should never put our hope in princes, in principalities, in kingdoms, in powers, because God is in control. And so we're always poised, as cool as a cucumber, even when it feels like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And here's the third and final one as we close. The people of God should always live like the victory is already won. We should always have the sort of perspective that says, life is short, but eternity is long. And because that's the case, I want to live that way. I want to live with that sort of perspective, that I have a couple of days, a couple of months, a couple of years on this earth, but what lays out before me is my eternity when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's a long time, folks. That's a long, long time. And so we see the example of how we should live our lives in the way that Daniel responds to all of this. Daniel 8, verse 27, it says, Afterward, I got up and I went about the king's business. He returned to the duties that God had laid out before him, that he wants to be faithful, to suffer well in the midst of his life. God, however many days I got left, let me be found faithful. Let me be found faithful. And to see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this, consider this. When we live a life of obedience, we can do this because, because the Son of Man, the Messiah, who came to the lion, to the bear, the leopard, the beast, the ram, the goat, with all of their horns of mighty power, Jesus did not come with a horn of his own. In fact, he came helpless. 
helpless. And he was gorged and destroyed. But just like Frodo and Sam, the great element of this story that we often overlook is the eucatastrophe of God, the joyful catastrophe of God, that on the day of Jesus' death, Satan and his minions rejoiced. They celebrated that their enemy, the king of the universe, had been destroyed, had been slain. But what he did not have the eyes to see was that the very death of Jesus became the resurrection of us all. That there was a gap between us and God because of our sinful rebellion. Because we were all like violent beasts without him. But through his death on the cross, the chasm was moved away so that we could have a right relationship with God once again. And we need this vision. We need to have the eyes to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things, that Jesus' death brings about life. You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.